The thrilling tales of the Jedi Knights made the Star Wars movies among the biggest ever made, and they all started in the imagination of George Lucas. But Leonard Maltin found out on an exclusive visit to Skywalker Ranch in Northern California that Lucas has more in mind for the Skywalker family. There's a lot of things happening. It's much more uh, about uh, betrayal and, and those kinds of issues. Will it be a continuation the, the way of uh, the kind of films we've seen already? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much in the same... You know, it's designed to fit in one big package, so it, it definitely is not going to be completely different. Uh, it does take place earlier than the, the ones that you've seen. You know, there's some action set pieces and things like that, but it's more uh, people portraying people, you're not knowing quite what's going on, you know, you don't know who the good guys are or who the bad guys are, and it's... You know, it's it'll be well, are any characters in it? If it's earlier, a lot of them wouldn't be alive, right? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and... and Anakin Skywalker and Mrs. Anakin Skywalker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One can only imagine a young Obi-Wan Kenobi flashing his lightsaber. And think of the possibilities of learning how Luke Skywalker's father, Anakin, turned from Jedi Knight to the evil Darth Vader. I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. When you put it all together, it'll be a, it'll be a uh -huh. complete story. Thanks, Leonard. So the big question is when. George told us he'll start the screenplay on part one within six months, but before production can begin, he has to oversee a fourth Blast Points is Jason. And this is Gabe. We've talked about it many, many times in the past. Star Wars, Lucasfilm, whatever. They never throw anything away. Art, music, everything you can expect to see and hear. Anything again. And that's especially true even for story concepts. Well, it's kind of fitting because it does seem like that whole concept of never throwing anything away started with the original Lucasfilm employee, Mr. George Lucas himself, has never been one to throw an idea away. I wonder if he's like that with leftovers, too. Like Maybe that's why he likes fast food, because there's no leftovers. Because when he makes food at home, he just can't get rid of it. And it just stays in the fridge forever. Start to figure out a use for that that rice. Don't throw it out. Maybe it's yeah. Well, it's we're probably we should be happy that he became a film director and not a chef. Or you'd like go to his restaurant and there would be something he cooked two years ago. That oh, this will just go perfect with what I just made today. <laughs> George, you can't use that. It's expired. Nope, not in my book. Maybe that you know it goes with the the Carrie Fisher interview. 
how the original idea he wanted to be a hairstylist, which was news to us and the rest of the world at that time. You know, once once you finish some doing someone's hair, it's done. There's no recycling it. Well, you could save the the clippings on the floor <laughs> in the into the into the archives. Here's your haircut from seven years ago. The whole idea of recycling story elements, yeah, really goes all the way, all the way, all the way back, yeah, to George Lucas's ten thousand different script drafts he did in the development of the original Star Wars. And surprisingly, what we're going to be talking about in this episode, or maybe not surprisingly, a lot of those script drafts had a lot of what we would see later in the prequels. Like, pretty clear. It's all kind of right there. The far, It's like the farther you go back, the more prequel stuff is in them. Right. It's like, why couldn't he make the prequels like the old movies? <laughs> why do you have to do new stuff? But it was old stuff. <laughs> it was the oldest. You know, long time, long time, long time listeners might be saying, yeah, well, way back in episode 72, you guys, you guys did a whole episode back in May 2017 on the script drafts of A New Hope, which we did. We did, but it wasn't so much focused on just the prequel bits, which, they, yeah, there's a lot so many when you start going through and just looking for prequel stuff it's kind of shocking and it starts you going down crazy paths in your head of like asking questions of like well wait this is all there and where's other stuff and then if you start thinking about like the whole development of the prequels was already kind of done even before he sat down on that that morning with oh all i need is an idea i got my pencils and it's crazy to think that, like, all these crazy prequel ideas, like, from Return of the Jedi to, like, when he started writing, what was that, 94? Yeah, 94. All that stuff was just rattling around in his head. All this crazy stuff. Well, and it is. It's the whole thing, like, well, George Lucas is different. He's older now, and this story is different because he's older. But a lot of these ideas are, yeah, right from his notebook, when he wasn't older, he was he's always been that weird <laughs> and goofy. It's that unfiltered, fresh from the bean Lucas magic. When when you start going through like the the earliest, earliest stuff, and we talked about this way back in that uh that episode seventy two, it becomes very, very clear that the kind of movies the prequels were, and a lot of the things that people get grumpy about the prequels still to this day was kind of the Star Wars that George Lucas always envisioned. And if you think about it like that way, it's like, well, that, you know, the special editions make sense and the prequels make more sense for somebody that's always kind of been confused on why they are the way they are, because that's always the way he kind of envisioned these movies like that. It's clear from his drafts he was writing in 1973 and 74. They're more like the prequels. Yeah, he really was constrained by budgets and technology and time. And it wasn't just like he didn't have time, but he wanted to go big and crazy and wild and nonsensical and <laughs> super outrageous right from the beginning in what? 73 is when he started these. So well, even when John Barry came on board, even the script that they had submitted to Alan Ladd and the thing they were actually going to film before they had to 
downsize more and more and more and more. I mean, you know, we talked about it two billion times, but it's part of the charm of the original film that it is kind of as minimalistic as it is. And it's kind of now become part of the whole Star Wars aesthetic. But that, yeah, that wasn't the way he envisioned it. And that it makes perfect sense. Like all those interviews after A New Hope where it's like, it's not what I had in mind at all. You know, <laughs> I'm glad people like it, but I don't. Yeah. Well, and that's always going to be one of the fascinating things about the Star Wars in general, too, is that it is it became, you know, the biggest movie ever for the time and this huge success and this obsession with so many people, but it was something that was a compromise to the writer and director who, yeah, didn't ultimately get the movie he wanted, but it kind of set the precedent for the movies that come afterwards. He had to be very excited when the technology caught up and he could make something like the Phantom Menace, which is way, way, more intense than the original movies and but way way closer yeah to these early drafts of just how much stuff he was cramming in and just kind of how out there it was i had to do the backstory in order to write the first three uh i had to know where darth vader came from i had to know what his relationship to luke was i had to know how ben kenobi figured in all of this um you know and i had to realize that there were you know, i had to understand that there were twins and the whole arc of the story in the in the three that are out there now is really the redemption of Anakin Skywalker. And so the first three are really, that I'm writing now, are really about Anakin Skywalker. So now you have a redemption of somebody that you don't really even know. He's just always in a black suit. But you don't know how he fell from grace and the, the trauma that went through to get him to there. And then his son brings him back. But it's, um, you know, and the real story hasn't even been told yet. Before we start getting into it, we've got to give a shout out to J.W. Rensler, once again, who wrote an article in Star Wars Insider number 92 titled Unknown Origins, which is pretty cool because like this issue of Insider came out right about the same time the making of Star Wars came out. And this article is like a companion to the book or it's something that he couldn't didn't have the room or talk about in in the making of star wars but yeah it's just all about this subject but yeah where does it all begin here for um for the star wars drafts so it all starts with the journal of the wills which was written in what early 1973 and was a what two-page story treatment yeah and our, our hero is the great mace windy which the name Mace, as we know, Mace Windu, of course, very close related to Mace Windy. But also, we can't forget the, the wonderful older brother, Mace, in both Ewok films. Do you think George Lucas was listening to, was it the Association? Is that who has the song, Everybody Knows It's Windy or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> what year did that song come out? Was he just playing that over and over again while he wrote it? Yes, that was from 67, so... That's probably a Lucas favorite. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, he was driving around San Francisco singing along. Everyone knows it's windy. <laughs> He's a Jedi named Mace Windy. <laughs> but with the so the character of Mace Windy, 
is in this little journal, the Wills thing, very much very Qui-Gon. He's someone who's expelled from the Jedi Order for his strange teachings. He's like, he's a rebellious kind of character. He's not on the Jedi Council. He's got a devotion to the living force, the force of the here and now. And Mace Windy takes a Padawan learner, which this is common phrases to us now, but George Lucas is writing this in 1973, Padawan Learners. His Padawan Learner is C.J. Thorpe. They go to the planet Yoshiro in the end on a secret mission sent to them by the Chancellor of the Galaxy, which is pretty much how The Phantom Menace begins, is how the Journal of the Wills ends. Well, and don't they call the, they get sent on the mission by the chairman? Don't they call him the chairman in that one? The chairman of the galaxy. That works too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but that's 1973. Mace Windy and C.J. Thorpe. And Padawan, which in 1999, that it was like, where did this word come from? This word's kind of crazy. And he'd been sitting on it for, how many years is that? I can't do math today. 20 years, 30 years? Forever. Yeah, we're old and weird, but we weren't even born yet. And Lucas was thinking of the weird stuff. We weren't even a thought yet. The word Padawan is older and weirder than either of us. It's the next one, May 1974, titled The Star Wars, an almost 200-page draft. And it was kind of really the first full-length story for his, uh, his space movie, that he was working on. But it's also probably the roughest, most insane, most confusing, and most farthest out from what eventually we got on screen a few years later. But it does have a lot of what ultimately ends up in the prequels. We get the main character, who is called Anakin. Spelled differently, A-N-N-I-K-I-N, Anakin. 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 Anakin Skywalker to see Padme. And, and Anakin's personality, like, Rinsler describes it as being more like Han Solo-ish, like cocky, flirtatious, ready to fight at any moment. But I read that, and that's still kind of Anakin Skywalker, too, especially, like, kind of Clone Wars Anakin. Like, he's cocky. He's flirtatious. We all know that. <laughs> it's Anakin Smooth Talker. Nobody flirts. Quite like Anakin Skywalker. We know that for a fact with a capital F. And also ready to go at any moment. So, Well, and the thing, interesting thing with this, too, is it's, you know, part of the story is Anakin hiding out on the desert planet Utapau, which eventually becomes Tatooine. But it is him hiding out with his brother and father, which kind of makes sense when in A New Hope we end up with Luke with his uncle, Owen. That always just kind of, like, I never really thought of him really being related, I think, ever until Attack of the Clones kind of made it true. But you can kind of see here that in the, in at least in the back of Lucas's mind at that point, he really was potentially his uncle. And it, yeah, and it opens, what, with a, a silver sleek spaceship shooting across space, which is, you know, very Flash Gordon and of course is how attack of the clones basically opens with a silver sleek spacecraft shooting across space and reading that kind of got me thinking though and again like what we were talking about too with the prequels are kind of what he always envisioned like you couldn't do in 
the 70s, like silver, shiny, reflective spaceships with the technology they had, with the blue screen, the whole aesthetic of Star Wars with the gray ships is kind of what they had to do. Another similar thing, Anakin has a brother. Well, that's not the similar thing. Well, he kind of does. I guess Uncle Owen does kind of become his brother by marriage. But he's killed by the a Sith and buried in the desert. And also, this is the first draft with the term Sith in it? Yeah, which is crazy thinking that the term Sith, it was, it was in the novel, like the, the Alan Dean Foster, the novelization, but not said on screen until The Phantom Menace. Well, other than that deleted scene that we finally got to see at, was it Celebration Europe? Oh, yeah, with the, the conference room and the Death Star, right, yeah. yeah. But technically, technically, not in a Star Wars movie. Like, they could have at any point in time said that Darth Vader is not a Dark Lord of the Sith, if they wanted to, because it wasn't in the movies. Well, maybe the one of the biggest things with this draft is just the speech of the Emperor, which is very prequel, with him talking about justifying an invasion of a peaceful system. And he talks about the Galactic Republic, but then he also talks about the independent systems. It's just, yeah, it's literally insane. Again, how much of this was, was rattling around in his brain for all this time? Because yeah, the emperor's speech here is upon this battle depends the survival of the galactic empire. Upon this battle depends the life and continuity of our civilization not since the great Jedi Rebellion has our destiny been placed in such a balance. This is to be the most magnificent campaign of all, the conquering of the Aquilean system, the last of the independent systems, the last refuge of the outlawed vile sect of the Jedi, will have such important and lasting consequences that I can't but consider it as an epoch in history. Well, yeah, I mean, it sets the tone for what the emperor is in the prequels. And it's also interesting reading this now that the sequel trilogy is done it. This is almost like exactly what Hux's speech is in force awakens. Oh yeah, totally. totally. It's like almost like the exact same length and tone and everything. It's yeah. It's the same, the, the empire, the first order, the, we're the greatest. We're doing such a great thing for all you people. You should all be so happy what we're doing <laughs> when it's like the most disgusting, horrible, evil thing in the world. Yeah. You know, I, I liked the Star Wars movies before they were political, you know? <laughs> oh, all that political nonsense Disney added. <laughs> they used to just be fun. But yeah, and then also you're just kind of setting the the seeds for the prequels with episode two and three with the Confederacy of independent systems and their leader, Count Dooku, who's leading the separatists who have broken away from the Republic. And the whole clone wars is about stopping these systems that are rebelling or trying to leave the Republic. One of my favorite tidbits in uh, Rinsler's making of star Wars book is that while George Lucas was writing this May 74 draft of the Star Wars, Marsha was off in L.A. editing uh, Martin Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And she was also working on Apocalypse Now at the time. And basically it was George Lucas in their home out by San Francisco just doing tons of research and just hammering out these drafts of just pure insanity of people riding birds. And 
He's probably fueled by nothing but Hershey bars and Coca-Colas because there was no one there to Marsha wasn't there to make him sandwiches. And like he would give these drafts to like Francis Coppola and be like, Dear Georgia, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know what you're doing. It's my time. It's George's time. Fun time. That's what I'm doing. But I just, you know, it's just there's something so it sounds corny, but something so innocent and awesome about him alone in that in this in the house he had with Marsha and just pretty much figuring out these movies that he wouldn't make until 1998 97 you know it's, there's just something awesome about that well especially cuz it's he's so into what he liked as a kid which were like the republic serials which were very corny and out there and very science fantasy it wasn't, you know, this is during the serious 70s when people are making serious movies and Lucas is, yeah, in his house just writing this absurd space fantasy with just nonsense stuff everywhere. And he's, you know, spending weeks and weeks on it because he just loves it. Well, and in the crowd listening to Palpatine's speech is uh, Klieg Whitson. And we all know Klieg, the name later comes back as Klieg Lars. And Whitson is our wonder, our best friend Baru's maiden name before uh, she takes on the Lars name. And even the planet that uh, Emperor 74 here is talking about, Aqualai, which I, I was convinced that Aqualai eventually was used in something Star Wars. Like, I was like, was that in Clone Wars ever or something? Like, And as far as I can tell, Aqualai still hasn't officially been in any quote canon stuff which is kind of shocking yeah because it's one of those things if you told me that they used it somewhere i would believe you right yeah because i was like wikipedia aqualai totally shocked but aqualai has a king and a queen who live in a quote palace of life the queen of aqualai even has handmaidens in 1974 and i don't know everything you read about aqualai sure sounds a heck of a lot like naboo well, and the king has to deal with a bickering senate, which, why did George have to add all this politics stuff to the prequels? Also, the king has the best name ever, King Chaos, <laughs> K-A-Y-O-S. And he's negotiating with, what, Count Sandage. So we've had counts in Star Wars since 1974. Which is crazy to me, too, because I always thought the Count thing was like a wink-wink with Christopher Lee, because Count Dracula. But, yeah, it's interesting that yeah he the character maybe was Count Dooku before it was Christopher Lee, and maybe he thought about Christopher Lee because he was a Count and he was Count. I don't know if we ever got a really clear timeline on how the whole Christopher Lee thing worked. Well, he could have even been thinking about Christopher Lee as Count Sandage back in 74. This Count character could have always been Christopher Lee, for all we know. Yeah, and what this, so Count Sandage opposes General Anakin Skywalker, and Anakin Skywalker cuts Count Sandage in half, which is something we didn't get until The Phantom Menace. Well, we got it in the film strip. True. Yeah, so the film strip was a little, a little closer to the, to the source material. But yet, so this draft, like, as we get into the action-packed third act of this draft, the Emperor attacks Aqualai, 
And the people of Akalai actually see an invading army spreading all across the grassy lands of Aqualai. That's insane. It is. It really is. I mean, that is like, that's an iconic image from episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yeah, and again, that was just rattling around in his head the whole time. Can't tell anyone, it's a George secret. Like, it's such a specific thing, too. Well, and it makes sense in a way that that seems to be how he writes, that he comes up with scenes or, you know, later on with the indie indie movies, like set pieces. And that's one of his, like, the secrets to George Lucasness is he thinks of movies in that way. And I think that's one of the ways reasons the movies are always so enjoyable to watch because independent of the story, there's always these scenes that happen that are, they're visual and they're exciting and they're action packed. And, and that's what's in his notebook. Like it would be cool to have this scenario happen. And then those kind of get pieced together to work with the story. But I guess in hindsight, it makes sense that the, that that would there would be things he thought of back then that ultimately ended up in the prequels. Yeah, and you get that sense going through the Rensselaer books when when he goes through those drafts. It's yeah, it's set pieces. It's like this kind of happens, and there's loosely these characters, but he's not writing detailed line by line scripts. Right, and he's not writing like what people's thoughts and feelings are. It's very visual, even though it's at the the word stage. He's writing words to describe visuals and not thoughts and feelings. It's not his style. <laughs> <laughs> well, another other little tidbits from this uh, this this seventy four draft. There's the names Valorum, who's a, a Sith knight. There's Wookies. Uh, named Jamila. Who later we got to know as Queen Jamila. There's a rebel named Espa, Mos Espa. And one of the more fascinating things, which, you know, you can draw a line. There's a character named Bink Valor, which Jar Jar Binks. Bink was always a word floating around in his head. When he was going, when he dragged out this dusty old pad of paper from 1974. Bink, I like that one. <laughs> this story needs more Binks. When even in this, this 74 screenplay, though, there's the now classic thing of... The primitive culture defeating the more technologically advanced culture, which is now, uh, you know, it's, he talked about it in, for, you know, from Star Wars to Jedi. And it's such a Star Wars thing now. Like, everybody knows it. Like, the Ewoks and even the, the Rebel Alliance, the Scrappy Alliance. and It's just part of Star Wars. But this was something you know, there's very much, I mean, this is 1974. And he's... Very much inspired by what's happening with protests across America and Vietnam and what everything he's seen, everything that's going on around him. And it's, yeah, it's like we said, he's just sitting there doing research, being inspired by everything around him, coming up with the, you know, the secret sauce. Well, and this idea doesn't wait around till the prequels, but it's still, it's almost 10 years later when Return of the Jedi comes out where this whole primitives taking down the the technologically superior force finally ends up on the screen eight years is a long time to have (laughs) things rattling around in your head but even you think of the gungans with the trade federation i mean the gungans had their own technology but it was like giant blue balls and (laughs) crazy stuff but it's the it's the same kind of thing going on you know even aside from all that there's 
the Jedi rescue and protecting the young princess from Aqualai. There's a blockade of isolated systems. It's very, 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 very Phantom Menace. All the seeds of Phantom Menace are all right there in 1974. The Ewok battle uh, was one of the main... uh inspirations for the whole project when I first started Star Wars and it evolved out of my interest in a project I'd been working on uh, at the time about the Vietnam War and uh, one of the more fascinating aspects of that project was the human spirit, the human element uh, being able to withstand an onslaught of, of uh, uh, high technology and, and how the high technology had failed. Yeah, and, that, and then that takes us to next year, January 75. It's a new year, and it's a new screenplay, and it's this, the mouthful of a title, The Adventures of the Star Killer, Episode 1, The Star Wars. So what's going on in uh, this, this wonderful title here of a movie here? So this one this is like the most jam-packed one with stuff. But this one is when we first get a prophecy. Only this was the prophecy of the sun, S-O-N, of the suns, S-U-N-S, which is kind of, you know, another one of those things where it's like, well, in the prequels, why did why did Anakin have to be the chosen one? Why there to be a prophecy? And it's kind of this is where, why, <laughs> because it's 1975, the adventures of the Star Killer were about the prophecy of the Son of Sons. Do you remember in the Return of the Jedi special edition with, on the party on Coruscant that there was the rumor going around for the longest time that you hear one of the people in the crowd saying the Son of Sons? Do you remember that? I do, now that you say that, yeah. I remember being in the theater and like getting like one of the, a big ear horn out. Oh. But this draft also has the Jedi Order who are kind of on the outs. They're on hard they have fallen on hard times. And the Senate in this is under the control of, what, the Power and Transport Guilds. So not quite the Trade Federation, but pretty much the Trade Federation was there in 1975. Yeah, the quote from the the script is, The Great Senate diverted them by creating civil disorder. The Senate secretly instigated race wars and aided anti-government terrorists. They slowed down the system of justice, which caused the crime rate to rise to the point where a totally controlled and oppressive police state was welcomed by the systems. The Empire was born. Again, I like Star Wars when it wasn't political. Come on. No, why can't we go back to the old days of Star Wars? (laughs) Just for fun. Come on. (laughs) George Lucas. It's always one step ahead. But yeah, so this is the story about a Padawan named Darklighter who leaves his master after coming under the spell of the Bogan, which the dark side of the forest, which was later referenced in Rebels, right? Mm -hmm. The Ashla and the Bogan. It was also Boga, the name of the the species of the lizard that uh, Kenobi wrote in Revenge of the Sith. Is the moon that Jango was on? Are those the moons of Bogan or the moons of 
Bogdan. I think Bogdan, but you know, Shmishmai, Nabu Nabu. Well, and Darklighter, doesn't he forsake his master for the dark side? Yes, very much like Anakin. Yeah, leaves his master, and then he goes off and he meets Luke Sky Luke Starkiller. And Luke here Luke has a big speech in this screenplay that goes uh, as the Republic spread through the galaxy. Encompassing over a million worlds, the great Senate grew to such overwhelming proportions that it no longer responded to the needs of its citizens. After a series of assassinations and elaborately rigged elections, the great Senate became secretly controlled by the power and transport guilds. When the Jedi discovered the conspiracy and attempted to purge the Senate, they were denounced as traitors. Again, Lucas, always a couple steps ahead of everybody else. Technology, everything, hairstyles, fashion, always ahead. Again, this screenplay also has like another part with a gravestone in the desert, right? Mm-hmm. This is yeah. This they revisit the character visiting their mother's tomb, but this one has them making a pledge to their dead relative while kneeling in front of their tombstone, which we might remember from episode two. Luke Starkiller is eventually attacked by Tusken Raiders who hold him prisoner in a floating jail cell, which you remember from Attack of the Clones and Attack of the Clones. I like the way it's described in the script, too, as large gold bracelets with small antennas attached to the wrists and ankles. He's spread eagle and slowly rotating. You would think such a small thing in Attack of the Clones, the Kenobi being held prisoner by Dooku and held in this floating prison, revolving prison thing. But even that, something as small as that was rattling around in his head for like 30 years. Every night he tries to close his eyes and go to sleep, and he just can't get the image of a character with golden bracelets twirling around in a force field. And then later in another draft from 75, there's a whole thing where Luke is rescued by Ben Kenobi. And while Luke is at Ben Kenobi's house... Luke is haunted by dreams of Leia. There's a quote from the script here. Luke tosses and turns in his sleep. 3PO sleeps peacefully. Luke keeps hearing the voice of Princess Leia calling out for help. Suddenly he sits up in a start. That's straight up Revenge of the Sith right there. Well, dreams and nightmares, that's two and three and one. If you count the early drafts of that or the novelization, it's like, once you get back to prequel time, it's all about dreams and nightmares. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also the straight-up Revenge of the Sith scene of Luke rescues Leia and Chewbacca's with him. And Chewbacca is carrying an unconscious princess Leia on his back. And she wakes up mid-rescue and doesn't know where she is. Might remind you of a similar scene in uh, Revenge of the Sith with a... Obi-Wan Kenobi mannequin dummy that Hayden Christensen got to carry around. One thing I love in all these drafts, though, instead of jumping to hyperspace, in every draft they call it hyperskipping or jumping to hyperskip. I was kind of like, well, that maybe, you know, okay, that's fine. Lights, light speed skipping. Okay. I'm sure they went back and read all these. And forgot everything except for the lights, the, the skipping part. <laughs> Just circled that. 
Well, they circled that because that's the only thing in these that wasn't used. <laughs> Get a highlighter, just highlight whatever's in these drafts that hasn't already been used in something else. And skipping was the only one. So after these uh, 1975 scripts, things were kind of getting more submitted to like Alan Ladd Jr. And things were kind of starting to move along. And like we were saying, things were starting to kind of downsize once the realities of actually making the movie were coming in. And the influence of Joseph Campbell started coming in more. And, you know, you even had like Colin Cantwell and Ralph McQuarrie and even Ben Burt and John Barry coming on. And things start to become kind of more like Star Wars as we know it. But what's interesting is, yeah, these, like we've said, these ideas never, ever left Lucas's head. And, you know, people talk about, oh, he had nine movies, he had 12 movies. No, there were only six movies. But they were all just kind of, like we were saying, all just kind of ideas rattling around in his head. Not really, like, firm plans of here's what happens in episode one. Here's what happens in episode two. It's They were just kind of loose kind of concepts on what could maybe become a backstory because no one have you know no one ever thought there was even going to be another movie let alone 12 well and it is it's almost like it's always been one really long story that could be rearranged based on what section of story he wanted to tell and that it's like having a, a box full of cool ideas and scenes that you can grab and kind of recombine into something you it's basically kit bashing the story like how they would get bash the model kits i mean it's it's kind of neat to think about how a lot of the stuff we think of is just how they make a star wars movie and recycling old ideas never throwing anything away kit bashing things is all kind of really goes back to just the way lucas's brain works and how he would write and it's it's kind of neat how that way of working has kind of expanded to the entire process of making a star wars thing the original notes and the original outliner i don't know 15 pages this whole early part was written to set up the films that were made i had to sort of figure out who everybody was where they came from how they got got to be where they were and what the dynamic relationships were between everybody there is drama inherent in it because there is a lot of betrayal and a lot of things like that going on uh but a lot of the subtleties of the story and the intricate weaving of themes and everything hasn't really been done at all. This book was put together when I was, um, actually I was writing, I think I wrote graffiti in this book actually. I wrote graffiti and all the Star Wars in this book. One of the most important parts though of the roots of the prequel saga, the prequel trilogy, didn't come until The Empire Strikes Back though. Or maybe it didn't. I don't know. It's debatable. The whole thing of Anakin, Luke's father, being Darth Vader. Because if you really think about it, as much as George Lucas says, it was always the idea, it was always, you know, well, maybe it wasn't. (laughs) If there was only that first movie, and if that first movie flopped, which everyone thought it would, Francis Coppola, Brian De Palma, you would just watch this crazy space movie from 1977, and you would have zero reason to ever think that Darth Vader was Luke's father. Especially, you know, going by what Obi-Wan Kenobi says in the movie. But now, the fact that Darth Vader is Luke's father is kind of the whole point of everything going forward. 
And it's kind of fascinating going back and being like, well, where did that come from? Where did that start? When did those ideas first come about? Well, the thing with it is, and, and it's again, it's a very Star Wars answer, but it, it does seem like it's the whole, it's a certain point of view kind of thing. Because although the specific A to B to C of Darth Vader is Luke's father, there are characters and bits in the story of fathers and sons and fathers who are cyborgs. So you could say that the idea of one of the characters' father being this evil person or a or a robot or the bad guy is there. And it's one of the ideas in the box of ideas that can be reconfigured. But the actual specific use of the character Luke and the character Vader being his father is not there, but it fits with the other things where Luke and Leia were the same person at one point. So in, you know, the way George Lucas's mind works, you can kind of justify that. Yes. The idea was always there. Just how it was presented was not there until what the third draft of empire strikes back. If even then, in all those drafts, there's always like this whole master and apprentice or, yeah, like you said, father and son. It's, it's a big deal for George Lucas, like teachers, masters, fathers, however way, whatever way you want to interpret that concept. You know, and it echoes through the, the sequel trilogy, too. It's, it's all in there. Obviously, my first mentor was my father, but then you progress with either you know, people that are more skilled in a particular area than you are. Um, in film, Francis Coppola became my mentor and, and taught me how to write screenplays, taught me how to work with actors. Uh, I was much more of a, a cameraman and a film editor, much more on the technical side of things. And, um, you know, I think my last mentor probably was Joe. who Joseph Campbell. Joe Campbell, who asked a lot of the interesting questions and exposed me to a lot of things that made me very interested in... Uh, a lot more of the cosmic questions and the mystery. Uh, and I've been interested in those all my life, but I hadn't I focused it the way I had once I got to be good friends with Joe. I, I have a philosophy that we all teach, and we all teach every day of our lives. And it's not necessarily what we lecture. I've discovered kids don't like lectures at all. But it is really the way we live our lives and what we do with our lives and and the way we conduct ourselves. Um, and once in a while, they listen to the lectures. Um, so when I make the films, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm teaching on a much larger scale than I would just as a parent or somebody walking through life, because I have this megaphone. Anybody in the media has a very large megaphone that they can reach a lot of different people. And so whatever they say, whatever they do, however they conduct themselves, whatever they produce has an influence and is teaching somebody something. Uh, and uh, I try to be aware of what it is I'm saying. Well, I think the other really interesting thing, and it ties in with the father thing too, though, is when you go back in now after the prequels are done and see this old stuff, just how much almost more the prequels are what was in these original drafts and the actual original trilogy other than the first movie is not as much 
influenced by them as the prequels. So it is almost like the prequels, even though they came out all these years later, are kind of closer to what the original, original story was for Star Wars. Because, I mean, when you get into Empire Strikes Back, that they were kind of like, well, what do we do now? Like, they weren't really following the old outlines as much as the prequels ultimately did. Same with Return of the Jedi, other than maybe the, you know, the ending with the, the primitives taking on the tech, technologicals. So I don't know, it's just a, a fascinating aspect of all this, of the, the movies that came later that people seem to feel like aren't like the originals actually in a way really are the originals. <laughs> like they technically are one, two and three because they are based more so on the old, old ideas that he had. Cause yeah, originally in Lee brackets first way out there and simultaneously beautiful screenplay, yeah, Vader and Anakin were two different people. Like Ben summons Anakin Skywalker on Dagobah with Minch Yoda and tells Luke he has a sister and then Luke takes, you know, the the oath of the Jedi Knights with the ghost of his father and all that stuff. There's a quote in the annotated screenplays book with George Lucas saying, I didn't discuss the notion of Vader being Luke's father with Lee Brackett. At that point, I wasn't sure if I was going to include it in that script or reveal it in the third episode. I was going back and forth and then rather confused things with Lee, con- confused things for Lee. I decided to keep the whole issue out of the mix. I figured I would add it later on, which is really kind of perplexing because if he was going to add it later on, then why the scene with the ghost of Luke's father coming out? And they're even talking about Vader. But remember, and I. <laughs> Almost every other line in that script, there's a giant Lucas handwritten no next to it. <laughs> that's that's true. So they're very well, and I'm trying to remember if after that whole scene with the ghost and the oath, if there weren't a bunch of red no's written on the side because maybe he was thinking of it and just because he didn't say it and she didn't know that was one of the reasons that those scenes were no's not that they weren't too outrageous or insane it just happened to be that he had different plans for the anakin skywalker character yeah because kasdan says flat out yeah when we started working on empire george said darth was luke's father and i thought that was really cool (laughs) so but it's an interesting thing to think about, though, because at that moment, you know, so many of these scripts that we've talked about, these drafts, these versions, a lot of them, you know, were called the adventures of Luke Skywalker and all that stuff. And at that point, when Lucas doubled down on no, Darth Vader is Luke's father, I almost feel like that's when it wasn't the adventures of Luke Skywalker anymore. And it kind of became the Skywalker saga that we know it as now, which has defined this story still to this day, right up until last December and who knows, you know, again in the future, but you know, and also I can't help thinking too, like if Vader never was Luke's father, they would have been two different characters, how different that whole story would have been. I mean, would return of the Jedi then have just ended with Luke, killing Darth Vader and everyone being like, good job. We defeated the empire. You know, it would, it would be such a different kind of story and it would be kind of the more flash Gordon-y kind of story that he grew up on. And it wouldn't have the thing that kind of makes it, 
you know, the fact that it's Star Wars and the, what people love about it so much that there is the, the you know, these other levels to it. And, it, the, and again, the, the Campbell stuff that kind of came and changed the drafts from being the Buck Rogers kind of story to something beyond that. Well, going from just pure science fantasy into myth. As that evolved, and as I did the first film, I didn't know that uh, how the public would take all this and that it would be as successful as it was and Darth Vader would become the character that he became. And, and uh, so when I got down to uh, the second film, I had to make a decision about whether I was really going to go through with this thing of him being his father and uh, finally decided that that really was the way I mean, it was the original story and that was the one I really liked the most and so I'd stick with it after Darth Vader has been this become been thrust into this huge persona that I never expected to have happen uh, do I still take the mask off and have him be this final man well again my I sort of came to the decision of that was the original story that's the way it should be and if the public can't deal with it then what can I do about it a lot of people have objected to the fact that there's a human in there at all but the film is about human frailties it's not about monsters so even in all the stuff we talked about there's you know there's random things in there that we still have never seen do you think they they could or would anybody in future projects, animated, TV, film, whatever, use any of this old stuff? I mean, we had the the Guardians of the Wills in Rogue One, and we never even heard the word Wills in a Star Wars anything until then. I mean, I wonder if some stuff could be used, mined again in the future. And, you know, Lucas kind of being this ghost in the cosmic force that he kind of has been and throughout all these this new era of Star Wars. I'm sure they will. I mean, I was only half joking with them going back with the highlighter and highlighting skipping. Like, I'm sure that really happens when they start a new project. They go back and like, was there something that we didn't use? Because they're the sacred Jedi texts for real at this point. So I don't see why they wouldn't keep, you know, they keep going back to old Macquarie art. They keep going back to these old drafts. They go to old, other concepts, it, it it's smart because it helps. Well, it's smart because it, it makes it faster to come up with stuff. It's smart because it helps keep new Star Wars feel like old Star Wars. As much as it's, you know, enjoyable and inspiring for us to go back and just read these old drafts just because it's interesting and fun. I'm sure it's the same way for people working on new stuff in Star Wars as well. That just, even if they don't take something exactly from this, just reading this stuff i'm sure inspires new ideas as well so i yeah i don't see this stuff ever not being important to the process of making new star wars Posters at Burger Chef. R2D2, hurry up. 
That's right. Four posters featuring the stars of Star Wars are at Burger Chef. <laughs> We'd like a Star Wars poster, please. How to? It's our lucky day. It's us. Just buy a large serving of Coca-Cola for 49 cents at participating Burger Chefs, and a Star Wars poster is yours to control. There are four spectacular full-color Star Wars posters in all, so start your collection today. Artu, I think we'd better leave. Star Wars posters, only at Burger Chef, while supplies last. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. deal apple podcast itunes whatever you want to call it reviews we love getting them it helps the show in mysterious hyper skipping ways and yeah if you leave us a little review on there and say something nice we will read yours on an upcoming show we've got one ready to go but could use a couple more and after that check out our website blastpointspodcast.com Darth Field is actually back for all you dozens of Darth Field fans out there. Darth Field is like Palpatine. <laughs> Somehow he has returned. We do never know. And make sure you check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you are on Facebook, make sure you're in the Super Chill group. It is the Blast Points place to be on Facebook. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army on Patreon. There's so many episodes on there. There's all of our old Clone Wars episode recaps, uh, Mandalorian stuff from last year. And later, by the end of the month, there's going to be that commentary for a wonderful Star Wars ripoff film that we are looking forward to talking about. But that about wraps up episode 227 here. Prequel ideas of the original trilogy drafts. The prequel of the prequels. Next week, Saga Year is back. We're going into the original trilogy. What could it be? What could it be? What movie could it be? What could we be talking about? What could we be listening to? So, yeah, think about that until next week. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
I think what happens in a project when you're with it and with the characters is, which is what happened to me in the first one, sort of led me along this course, is you fall in love with the characters and you fall in love with the environment. It's like a home. You feel very comfortable making up things that happen in there. It becomes your own little fantasy land, I think. And the reality is, is I love that world. I mean, there are friends there. It's like a home. I have a home there. And uh, so there's always going to be a desire on my part to uh, go home again or to be with my friends again. May the force be with all of you.